On today's episode, we're diving into the drama, intrigue and scandal that rocked one of the most iconic bands of all time, Fleetwood Mac. I'm your host Aileen and on this episode, get ready to hear all about the band's turbulent relationships, the highs and lows of their career and of course, the bangers that made them famous. From rumours to Tusk and beyond, we'll be exploring the music that defined a generation and the juicy behind-the-scenes gossip that kept the fans hooked. Trust me, it's better than an episode of EastEnders. Today on Bitches and Bangers, we're discussing the soap opera of Fleetwood Mac. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bitches and Bangers. Thank you so much for listening. I am super, super duper, whooper excited for today's episode. Um, It has been on my list of topics I wanted to talk about when I was first getting the idea of doing this podcast together. And I think I might have to split this episode into two or three parts because there's a lot of ground to cover. But we'll get to that maybe at the end and we can see what you guys have thought of the episode and then I'll decide whether we're going to do a part two but today as you might have gathered from the intro I am going to take us through a deep dive into one of my favorite groups ever Fleetwood Mac and specifically the Fleetwood Mac version that most of us know and love the best and that is Mick Fleetwood, John McPhee, Christine McPhee, Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. Now, anything you can imagine happening to a rock and roll band has happened to Fleetwood Mac. 55 years in existence, they are now considered one of the biggest and best bands of all time, but this came at a huge cost. With a revolving door of members, breakups, fallouts, legendary indulgences, and long-term dependency, yet despite this, they continued to sell out stadiums around the world, millions of copies of albums and have kept their fans engaged and wanting more through all these decades. Now Fleetwood Mac are a British American rock band formed in London in 1967 during the heavy blues explosion. So standing behind Mick Fleetwood and John McPhee in the band's first lineup was guitarist and vocalist Peter Green and Jeremy Spencer. Now, Mick Fleetwood describes Green as simply the best thing to come out of England and a monster on the guitar. If you want a quick insight into Green's talent, I personally would highly recommend you listening to Fleetwood Mac's song, Oh Well. It's from their 1969 album, Then Play On. That will give you a really good um, idea of like his talent at the time. Um, but even as the front man... Peter, he didn't want the band centred around him. So he decided to name the band after his rhythm section, which consisted of Mick Fleetwood on the drums and John McPhee on the bass guitar. And thus came Fleetwood Mac. Now in 1969, the band bet the Beatles to number one with their hit Albatross. So they bet, I think it was Obladi, Oblada by the Beatles. They sold out the Beatles um, with their hit Albatross. However, this success for Mr. Peter Green would be short-lived. During the band's European tour in 1970, Green experienced a bad acid trip at a hippie commune in Munich. Clifford David, 
who was um, the band's manager at the time, singled out this incident as the crucial point in Green's mental decline. He said, and I quote, The truth about Peter Green and how he ended up how he did is very simple. We were touring Europe in late 1969. When we were in Germany, Peter told me he had been invited to a party. I knew there was going to be a lot of drugs around and I suggested he didn't go. But he went anyway. And I understand from him that he took what turned out to be a very bad, impure LSD trip. He was never the same again. So German author and filmmaker Rainer Lanzhang stated in his autobiography that he met Green in Munich and invited him to their Heiswich commune where all the drinks were spiked with acid. And they were planning to organise an open-air Bavarian Woodstock and they wanted Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones to be the main acts. So they invited um, Green thinking that he would help them get in contact with the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix. Um, unfortunately and very sadly Green never came back from this hippie commune that was that was it for him um, so that left the band with a um, lead guitarist and singer so Mick, John and Jeremy continued without Green and then in 1970 Christine Perfect who by now was married to John and she then became known as Christine McPhee officially joined Fleetwood Mac she initially started helping them um, as a session musician during their second album while she was a member of her own band um, that was called Chicken Shack. The task of replacing Green as main vocalist and guitarist fell then on Jeremy Spencer. But the bad luck for the group clearly was continuing because in 1971, while on tour again, Jeremy left to go out to a bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard. That's what he told everybody. He was nipping out, wouldn't be long. And he never came back. He went out to grab a book or a newspaper or whatever he was doing um, down in Hollywood and he never returned. Now after several days of frantic searching the band discovered that Jeremy had actually been scouted and joined a religious group, the Children of God. So we have one member who joined a hippie commune and just took a really, really shitty acid trip and was never the same again and really deteriorated his mental health. And then a year later, we have, you know, the only other main guitarist and vocalist um, join a cult, basically. And, you know, Christine, she was one of the main vocalists of Fleetwood Mac, but she was not interested in, like, fronting the band. So, you know, we're left again without a vocalist or a guitarist. And um, in 1972, they had uh, another guitarist, Danny Kerwin. He left the band then after smashing his guitar against the dressing room wall in LA. He just, stole, he was like, fuck this, I'm out. So, you know... It's not looking great for them. They've got a revolving door here of members and it's it's not getting any better because Green, Spencer and Curran were all replaced by guitarist and vocalist Bob Welch, guitarist Bob Weston and vocalist Dave Walker. And by 1974, all three of these had either departed or been dismissed, leaving the band without a male vocalist or guitarist once again. And it was discovered that Bob Weston had actually had an affair with Mick Fleetwood's wife, Jenny Boyd, and was asked to leave the band. Um, which, fair enough, you know, 
I've taken you under my wing in this band and you're now gonna cheat on me not cheat on me you're gonna um do the deed with my wife and it turns out that he was actually um one of Mick's like best friends and I was watching a documentary there a few days ago and Mick actually said that he was weirdly like glad that it was him and not somebody else that did it with his wife um which is quite strange I'm I I get it from the point that, you know, at least, like, he knows him and it's not some, like, psychopath down the road that might strangle her in her sleep or something. But that's your be- That's one of your best friends. He just stabbed you in the back. And he continued to be, like, good friends with him. But I think for, like, you know, confrontational problems and whatever, he was asked to leave. So there we have another gone. And it was during this period then, so... All of these guitarists and vocalists are coming in and out. You know, they can't keep any, they can't hold anybody down. So they decide to relocate to LA. They were based in England, um, in London, and they decided that, you know, we'll re- relocate to LA. It might be the change of scenery we need. And during this period, we have American folk rock duo, Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. And they'd also relocated to Hollywood to pursue a successful music career. Um... And at, by this point, they were a romantic item, if you will. Um, they secured a deal with Polydor Records and their first album, Buckingham Nicks, was released in 1973. This um, got a... It got some good reviews and it got like a bit of critical success, but it wasn't commercially successful enough, so the label actually dropped them. So after almost eight years together as... Um, boyfriend and girlfriend the pair were back to square one with Stevie working several waitressing jobs um and Lindsay continuing to write music so Stevie would go work her two or three jobs that she had come back in the evenings they'd stay up all night write songs she'd get up the next morning she was bringing in the money for them and it was around this time that Stevie recalls that she first started taking cocaine and she stated in an interview in 2009 that we were told that it was recreational and that it wasn't that and that it was not dangerous and we'll we'll touch on that again later but that same year then Mick Fleetwood was out scouting out studios in LA and he heard a track um playing from the Buckingham Nicks album and he asked Lindsay to join the band now Lindsay agreed to this on the one condition that Stevie could also join as a vocalist. And so a meeting was organised and um, they discussed this over a dinner at a Mexican restaurant on New Year's Eve. And according to Mick, everybody got on like a house on fire and Lindsay went on to say that everyone thought it was unique that there were two women. Which, um, you know, sounds quite sexist and misogynistic, but I guess at the time, like in the 70s and 60s and whatever, like was very uncommon for women to be in rock bands in general never mind two in the same band and never mind one of them well yeah two in the same band and then both Stevie and Christine would go on to be like the two main female vocalists and they were writing like a lot of the songs so that was Fleetwood Mac were really doing something there like I don't I mean someone can correct me if I'm wrong because obviously like I wasn't around in the 70s but I can't think off the top of my head of another band from that era that had female and males in them so it was uncommon but that's what made it even more interesting um and you know you have got two females and then also goes hand in hand with that two couples in the same band which is quite uncommon too 
Um, and Christine recalls instantly liking Stevie and not because she was like her, but quite the opposite, that they were so unalike. And that was that, the newest and arguably the most famous version of Fleetwood Mac was formed. So the group had a whopping number of nine albums released before Lindsay and Stevie joined the joined the band. And I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah, they had nine. And obviously then the first album with Stevie and Lindsay would go on to be their 10th. And the duo would be the addition that the group really needed to propel them into worldwide success. And I think a lot of this can be attributed to um, Lindsay and Stevie's writing styles because it swiftly took the group from a blues band to more of a pop rock one um, and that was like super popular at the time. So in 1975 the new lineup headed to the iconic Sound City in LA to record their first album which was self-titled as Fleetwood Mac. This album is often referred to by the fans as the White Album um, because obviously like back in 1968, the original lineup had released their debut album, which was also called Fleetwood Mac. So you've got two albums by Fleetwood Mac called Fleetwood Mac. So the fans decided they'd call it the White Album. Um, this album was a huge success. It reached number one in the US and sold, at the time, was selling more than 7 million copies. Spawned three top 20 singles, which were Over My Head, Rihanna and Say You Love Me. Um, Stevie and Lindsay had a lot of material that were was initially going to be used in their next Buckingham Knicks project. So these tracks, a lot of these tracks got recycled for the White Album. Um, for example, before joining Fleetwood Mac, um, Stevie wrote Rihanna um, after seeing the name in a novel um, called Triad by Miri Leader. She wrote the song and she she thinks of it as a song about an old Welsh witch. It's about a very mystical woman that finds it very, very hard to be tied down in any kind of way. Um, and I think a lot of people, and myself included, we look at Stevie Nicks and we all think, like, she's a witch. Like, there's something about her. She's got a very mystical energy about her, like the way she performs on stage, her style her lyrics the way she writes is so different than the rest of the band it's very like spiritual and a bit airy fairy um you know and you see the way she performs like i i'll probably bring this up a lot this episode but i see her live performances and i'm like she's cursing somebody like she's putting a hex on somebody we'll get to that later but you know this was obviously coming up a lot for her and she had told the guardian um in her, in her response about comments that claimed she was a witch, she said, and I quote, Rihanna was the only song I ever wrote about a sort of celestial being, but that song and the fact I wore black, floaty clothes somehow became this witch thing. About three years into it, it actually started to scare me. People were writing me really weird letters that were scaring me. So I had my stylist make me up a bunch of outfits that were just horrible. I call them the Easter egg outfits because they were peach, mint, green and blue, not colours for me. And I wore them and I so did, and so did my girl singers. I thought, I'm going to put the top on the box of this one. After a while, I said, screw that. I'm going back to black. And if they think I'm a witch, I don't care because I'm not a witch. I personally think Stevie just should have owned that. I think if that was me and people were calling me a witch, I would have probably just been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would have just worked it. Because she ended up, I think, 
after like her after her stage performances people were kind of like looking at her like this fashion icon which she is and she paired up with um a fashion designer and made like loads of custom made shawls and knee high boots and stuff that were like really matching the bohemian gypsy energy so i just think she should have just went with the witch thing but you know just my opinion (laughs) moving on um Mick actually said that one day the group were rehearsing that song before they went into the studio to record it and his initial thoughts was oh my god we're home and dry Lindsay is a great performer and Stevie was immediately in charge of her arena so her live performances of the song throughout the decades began to take on a theatrical intensity not present on the album the song built to a climax in which Stevie's vocals were so impassionated that Mick Fleetwood declared Rihanna in those days was like an exorcism and it was I think there's a video is it from 1974 or 5 of her singing that song and the version they do on stage is an extended version it's not um it's much longer than the one in the album and she is she it is it's like she's she's having an exorcism but like the most graceful exorcism I've ever seen she something that takes over her body in that performance um yeah we'll go look that up beautiful so it's funny because basically the woman who joined the group essentially as a plus one because um mick obviously only asked Lindsay to join and Lindsay was like i'm not joining without her so they were like Ugh, fine um so the woman who joined as a plus one created the hit that would begin to you know propel the group up the u.s charts um, but by this point, tensions were already rising in the band during the recording of this record, with Lindsay trying to get the group to march to his drum. He was asserting himself as sort of the front man. And during record sessions, um, bass player John McPhee took offence to his assertive nature in the studio, particularly when he was telling other band ma- members what he wanted to play. Um, McPhee informed Lindsay that and I quote the band you're in it it, let me repeat that oh my god here we go again with my not being able to speak John informed Buckingham and I quote the band you're in is Fleetwood Mac I'm the Mac and I play the bass return of the Mac return of the Mac that's what he said he said listen bitch You want to get off your high horse there, take a little seat, and I'm going to tell you who's boss. It's me. It's me. Um, But, I mean, this power dynamic um, was quickly settled, and a compromise was made that would be the foundation of the group's success for decades to come. So Lindsay would assist Stevie and Christine in deepening their compositions and writing, while the rest of the group would give almost like a soul and elasticity to his tightly wound songs. Lindsay later went on to say that the tension was probably his fault because it took him a while to appreciate John's approach. Meanwhile, John went on to praise Lindsay's um, less is more style, stating that the harmonies that were written to complement the three vocalists was what made all their songs so captivating. So, you know, they pushed their, their egos aside and they said, we're both right. In 2003, the Rolling Stones named the White Album 182nd on the Rolling Stones 500 greatest albums of all time so that was that that was their first album um 
And yeah, it was a huge bloody success. So following on from the success of the White Album, the group were suffering from severe stress. <laughs> no, that's an understatement. Severe stress. These, these folks were going through it. With the success came the end of John and Christine's marriage, as well as Buckingham and Nick's long-term romantic relationship. And as I said... Fleetwood was in the midst of divorce proceedings from his wife, Jenny, after he found out she cheated on him with his best friend. So, you know, that, that's quite difficult. So going into, um, going into Salsalito to the record plant to record rumours, the group had two major challenges. Firstly, recording and making another successful album. And secondly, making it through the personal struggles each member was encountering. The pressure on Fleetwood Mac to release a successful follow-up album combined with their newfound wealth led to creative and personal tensions which were also fueled by high consumptions of drugs and alcohol. Lindsay described the recording and writing process as an exercise in denial. You had to put your feelings over here and get on with what needed to be done in the rest of the room. And then Christine stated that we were all writing songs about each other, although we were all unaware of it at the time. I think it was John who suggested the name Rumours because we were writing sort of diaries and journals about one another, which we hadn't realised till we heard all the strong some strung together. So, let's go through some of these so-called rumours, shall we? Let's start with the McPhee's. So John McPhee was known to be quite a heavy drinker back in the 60s and 70s. Um, He himself said that I was over the top, way over the top and beyond the pale, as it were. So the fourth track on Rumours is Don't Stop. You all know it. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow, Um, which was the first one on the album written by Christine. Um, and she wrote this in the aftermath of her divorce from band bassist John McPhee, as we've as we know. Um, this is one of the most enduring hits for the for the band, and it's sung by both Christine and Lindsay. And um, yeah, it it's basically just reflecting her feelings on the separation from John. She said that it seems like a pleasant revelation to have yesterday's gone. She says. It might have, I guess, been more directed towards John, but I'm just definitely not a pessimist. And that tr- that statement is true. Um, if you look through Fleetwood Mac's discography and Christine's discography, she is the queen of producing the upbeat, boppy tunes for Fleetwood Mac. All of her songs, bar maybe one or two, are quite optimistic, uplifting. They've got like a pep in their step. Um, you got Don't Stop, uh, Little Lies, Everywhere, you know, whereas like every single song written by Lindsay and Stevie on the album is about each other, but they're quite like, there's not really much like hope there, as you will, one or two of them have it, but you know, I thought this is such a Christine thing to do is to write like a breakup song with saying it's all going to be good. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Um, but yeah, so it was inspired by their their marriage ending because after six years of marriage, the cracks were starting to show in their foundation. And she later went on to say in an interview last year, actually, um, 
I'll say, and I quote, we were very happy, very happy for probably three years. And then the strain of me being in the same band as him started to take its toll. When you're in the same band as somebody, you're seeing them almost 24 hours a day. You start to see an awful lot of the bad side because touring is no easy thing. There's a lot of drinking. John is not the most pleasant of people when he's drunk. I was seeing more Hyde than Jackal. I broke up with John in the middle of a tour. I was aware of it being rather irresponsible. I had to do it for my sanity. It was either that or me ending up in a lunatic asylum. And in John's words, he said, You've got the pressure of being on the road for a start and living together and seeing everybody at their best and at their worst. And with Chris, she saw me at my worst one too many times and bless her heart, she said enough. I don't want to be around this person. So we talked about it and made the decision. But at the bottom of all that stuff was that we have something musically that we can achieve. Now we are as good as friends as ever, but at that moment it was awful because you're told by somebody who you adore and love, who you still do, that I don't want to be in your life anymore. That is so sad. Um, And she went on to say again that one of the hardest things was to see John so sad. We didn't talk at all. Stevie and Lindsay didn't get on, but they used to fight. But John and I used to avoid each other. We did not write songs together and we did not talk except for the civilities of life. Um, so yeah, she wrote Don't Stop. That song actually, fun fact, fun fact of the day. I mean, probably a lot of people actually probably know this, but um, the song became a hit almost 20 years after its release when it was used as the theme music for Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. And upon winning the election, he persuaded the group to reunite and perform the song for his inaugural ball in 1993. The more you know. So if rumours give Christine the chance to tell John, don't stop thinking about tomorrow, it also give her the opportunity to tell her lighting director that you make loving fun. You make love and fun. It's all I want to do. Um, that song, in case you didn't know, it's called You Make Loving Fun. That to me is definitely the grooviest track on the record. It's got like a bit of swagger to it. It's kind of sexy. Um, and early tracking of the song was done in the absence of Lindsay, which gave Christine the freedom to build the song on her own. Buckingham later came in and played the rhythm guitar and he said, Christine and I had a common foundation, even though she was trained and I was not, and even though her background was in the blues, we had a very similar music and um, a melodic sense and it would just spark off. So as I said there a minute ago, the song was inspired by an affair that Christine had with the band's lighting director, Curry Grant. Firstly, what a terrible name. Imagine your first name being Curry. I get it like as a second name, but your first name, mm mm-mm. So yeah, she was um, doing the dirty with the line director while still married to John. And this is so iconic. It's iconic and also so dumb at the same time. Like I'm in two minds about whether she was just a genius for saying this or like just plain stupid. Like, did she think John was stupid? That's what I want to know. Because to avoid flare-ups, she told John and the fellow band members that the song was about her dog. Yes, about her dog. And 
you know it, that is it is giving the energy of you know why why don't you have your homework oh the, the dog at it like nobody's believing that and if they did what like if you look at the lyrics of the song she's saying um you make love and fun it's all i want to do i never did believe in miracles but i have a feeling it's time to try who in the right mind is writing that about their dog I mean, if you are, you should think about like getting yourself in for a psychiatric assessment um, because there might be something wrong with you. I just think like, how disrespectful to John for her to say that. Like, she's probably sneaking around the studio in Salcedo or wherever and, you know, in in the bloody like, what do they call them? The, the janitor's closet in America, like getting down and dirty with him and then going out, like, fixing her hair into the studio to record, and John being like, hey, is that... John probably John probably thought the song was about him. And she would have been better off telling him the song was about him than about her dog. My God. Funny, though. Iconic. We love it. Christine, you were a legend. We love you. Um, She said that that relationship... I mean, stating the obvious here, Christine. Christine said, that relationship was obviously awkward because wherever John was... Curry couldn't be. Um, yeah, Christine and John had like a very awkward kind of breakup. They, as she, as I said, like they, they didn't speak at all for the entirety of, of rumors. And I think it took like just over a year to record rumors, which was it. It's common now for an album to take that long to record, but like back in um, the sixties, seventies, even eighties, like that was a fucking long time to take to record an album. Um, so imagine being in such a, sh- like, the record plant in Salcedo is, like, not a big studio either. Like, imagine being confined to that space for nearly a year and, like, not really talking. Except for, like, you know, what key is this song in or whatever. And then, you know, having an affair with the line director and then lying about it. We'll move on to Stevie and Lindsay. So Stevie states that before they even joined the band, her and Lindsay were already on thin ice. She recalls her and Lindsay making this almost silent promise to one another to fix their relationship for now because we cannot break up and if we do, there will be no more Fleetwood Mac. So for the first few months of recording rumours, her and Lindsay were still together but their relationship was rapidly deteriorating and this brought about the inspiration for the undeniably captivating track Dreams. So Dreams was written before the final blow up between the pair And Stevie knew when she wrote Dreams that it was special and she wasn't self-conscious about showing it to the band. She stated, It's always difficult giving your song to somebody and knowing that they can take it to a place that you can't. Lindsay had an amazing way of taking my songs and making them wonderful when he was happy with me. And then Lindsay said in his words, Whatever Stevie's music was, somehow I was the soulmate who knew exactly what to do with it. And that never went away. It just became a little bittersweet in terms of wanting to do it. There were times when I had a huge urge not to help her. And that's a weird thing to admit. But these were the challenging things. You know, so I get it. Um, Imagine like just really being on, like, you know, it's going to end. But you're trying to like keep it together for the sake of the band. And that's just what you have to do you have to push your feelings aside and you got to help them because if you like you know you can make the song better you got to help them but it must be like 
it must bruise their ego quite a bit I would assume to just be like right fine I'll help you but that's rock and roll baby um Christine described the song as having just three chords and one note in the left hand and boring when Nick's played a rough version on the piano imagine calling dreams boring um the audacity Christine really was having a lot of audacity in in um in this recording wasn't she your song's boring and my song's about my dog um anyway but she changed her mind after hearing Lindsay um when he fashioned three sections out of identical chords making each section sound completely different he created the impression that there's a thread running through the whole song so Stevie said in um one of their documentaries which is called the Fleetwood Mac story I believe that it was really her who wanted freedom from the relationship um, that it was getting toxic and obsessive and this then obviously reflects the song's opening line now here you go again you say you want your freedom so she's not actually talking about him she's talking about herself she says that she was looking for some spring air and to be able to breathe again and that Lindsay the relationship with Lindsay was like the total opposite it was trapping her lyrically dreams really is a dream song if you will it's packed to the brim with metaphors and double entendres um in the first verse she sings it's only right that you should play the way you feel but listen carefully to the sound of your loneliness so she's telling him to play the song as a metaphor for their relationship and she's cautioning him to listen to his lonely heart when she eventually decides to leave him or when he decides to leave her whatever way and if you listen to that song um at the end of each phrase that she sings you can hear Lindsay's guitar and the way he's playing it it's almost like it's weeping like at the end of each phrase like it's crying it's weeping um and in Miss Nix knows how to bring the drama to a live performance. She loves throwing in like random ad libs or like just random new lines that aren't in the original track. And she's known in her live performances to say, You know what you lost. What you had and what you lost. You know what you lost. Um, and this is obviously further articulating her message to Lindsay that he may never find another woman like her. Ever. It's giving very, um, for anyone who's watching Daisy Jones and the Six, which I assume if some people are listening to this, they might well be watching Daisy Jones and the Six because it's heavily inspired by Fleetwood Mac. Even though this line is not actually in the show, it's in the book, but you know, Camilla Dunn and she's like, you, you think there's another woman alive who's better than me? That's the energy Stevie's given here. And dead right, Stevie fucking nicks for God Christ's sake. Um... And then the pre-chorus, she says, so it goes, like like I said, it's only right that you should play the way you feel, but listen carefully to the sound of your loneliness. And then the pre-chorus goes into, like a heartbeat drives you mad in the stillness of remembering what you had and what you lost and what you had and what you lost. So, I mean, the way I'd be interpreting that is like when all the dust has kind of settled, like when we're finished making this album and you know we have a minute to breathe you're still going to be sitting alone and your heartbeat is going to constantly drive you crazy because it's going to remind you of me and how you let me go 
And then obviously the repetition of the last phrase, what you had and what you lost, what you had and what you lost, emphasizes the loss that he's going to feel. Um, I always think like like a heartbeat drives you mad. I'm one of those people, I, re- I can't take my own pulse. Well, I can, but I really don't like it. And you know, if you're cuddling someone or like if your head's in their chest and I hate the sound of the, the heartbeat, I don't know what freaks me out. And some people find great comfort in that, but not me. So that heartbeat would drive me mad personally. Um, but Dreams is a fantastic example of the band just pulling it together um, and getting through it because um, Stevie, Lindsay and Christine often at times had to record on one mic in a small room and like looking at each other and you can imagine like the the, tor- the turmoil that they were experiencing at that time um, and how awkward that must have been and then to come out with vocals like that is very impressive and yeah she ended up giving again the girl who was only supposed to be the plus one ended up giving the group their first number one song in the states so there you go and um, there's a huge, huge, huge contrast. But Lindsay and Stevie, like they've said, they're like musical soulmates. But there's a huge contrast in the way they write songs. Stevie writes um, very mystically, almost whimsical, very like SoCal California girl on the beach. Um, she includes, like I said, a lot of metaphors, double entendres, leaves a lot of room for interpretation. It's almost like poetry. Whereas Lindsay's approach is much more direct and tough and straight to the point. He says it like it is. And Stevie considers Go Your Own Way. We all know that song. Um, banger. She considers Go Your Own Way to be Lindsay's dreams. And, I mean, in dreams, it's it's a heartbreaking song. And you, it's obviously, like I said, about her relationship with Lindsay ending, like at some point. But... There is something quite hopeful about it and something spiritual. Like when she's at the end, when, like at the end of the course, and she says, when the rain washes you clean, you'll know. Like, and to me, that means like, you know, we're going to get through this. We're going to come out the other side as better people. We'll still be friends and, you know, it'll be okay. And she had wrote that song quite early on in um, Rumours. So before he wrote Go Your Own Way, and then imagine, right? Imagine you're fucking Stevie Nicks and you wrote that nice, lovely song and it's all been recorded. Um, and then, you know, a few months down the line, we're back in the recording boot and Lindsay's been like, right, I've, I've wrote us another song. And it's Go Your Own Way. Um, yeah, and she said that Go Your Own Way was pure anger and nastiness and extremely disrespectful. She said... Um, so like it, when Lindsay was talking about writing the song he said I was completely devastated when she took off and yet I had to make hits for her I had to do a lot of things for her that I really didn't want to do and yet I did them so on one level I was a complete professional in rising above that but there was a lot of pent-up frustration and anger towards Stevie and me for many years so he says writing this song helped him come to terms with the reality despite his fallouts with Stevie Stevie on the other hand um, wasn't as enthusiastic about the song when she heard the song she demanded that he remove the line packing up shacking up's all you want to do packing up shacking up's all you want to do he obviously kept the lyrics in because we all know that line she later explained her feelings about the line saying I very much resented him 
telling the world that packing up, shacking up with different men was all I wanted to do. He knew it wasn't true. It was just an angry thing that he said. Every time those words would come on stage, I wanted to go over and kill him. He knew it. So he really pushed my buttons through that. It was like, I'll make you suffer for leaving me. And I did. Ouch, ouch, ouch. So Lindsay and Stevie went through like quite a rough breakup. Um, with Stevie saying that they actually broke up on the last day of recording rumours. So they obviously, like I said at the start, they made a like silent vow to each other to get through it for the sake of the album, for the sake of the band. And then obviously the last day came around and they were like, ah, yeah, so uh, fuck you, bye. Bye, bitch. Um, she told Rolling Stones that she lived with Buckingham from 1971 to 1975. And during that period, they were absolutely married in every way but for the ring. I cooked, I cleaned, I worked and I took care of him. And that period actually went on to inspire um, their massive hit Gypsy. So if you listen to the lyrics of that, you'll be, you can tell like it's written about them, you know, living together, her really picking up the stack for the team. She stated that in Salcedo, up at the little condominium, Lindsay and I. So she lived in a condominium with Christine at the time, um, not with Lindsay. Up at the little condominium, Lindsay and I were still enough together that he would come up there and sleep every once in a while. And on the last day, we had a terrible fight. I don't remember what about, but I remember him walking out on me and saying, you take the car with all the stuff and I'm flying back. So, yeah. Go Your Own Way was quite a vicious attack on Lindsay, I think. Oh, not on Lindsay, on Stevie from Lindsay. Um... And just even like the tone that he sings it in is so aggressive. Like he's so angry on that song. And that's why it is considered like the ultimate breakup song. But like not the ultimate sad breakup song. Like the ultimate like F you breakup song, if you will. It became, it was actually the first single off the album. And it was the band's first top 10 hit. So it was obviously released before Dreams because as I said, Dreams became number one. So Stevie won that battle because Go Your Own Way didn't go to number one, but Dreams did. Woo, women. (laughs) As if that wasn't bad enough, right? As if this wasn't bad enough for Stevie. Another big kick in the teeth for this girl was that her masterpiece, and I will die on this hill that I think this is um, one of her greatest songs. And it's been one of my favourite Fleetwood Mac songs for years like um and it's recently been doing the rounds on TikTok which I'm so happy about because now other people know it um is that her masterpiece as I said of a song Silver Springs was cut from the Rumours album because it was too long so she wrote it for the Rumours album said I want this on the album and they cut it because it was it didn't work for the vinyls it was too long so for every 12 inch vinyl you can only have 22 minutes per side so they cut it out they said it didn't fit the vibe of the album and they replaced it with I Don't Wanna Know which was another song written by Stevie it's much more like boppy like quite country um so they replaced with that instead and then they also decided that they'd put Silver Springs as the b-side to go your own way right so she doesn't get the song on the album and then the song has to go on the back of the song that's written about her as an attack. <laughs> God, that's so tough. So they actually recorded, and then in the middle of this, right, they recorded I Don't Want to Know, a song that she wrote without her knowledge and Lindsay sang both her lead part and the harmony 
And then the band told Stevie after they did this and she was fuming. She was raging, as you would. Like, bloody ask the girl first. But she decided to allow the song to be on the album or else only two of the songs she wrote would have been on Rumours. So then she went back in and recorded her own vocals for it. But, um, yeah, I just think it's insane that they replaced Silver Springs with with I Don't Wanna Know. And I get I get the whole, like, it's, you know, logistical approach. Like, they they can't have songs that long. Like, it's not the same anymore because you can have, like, two vinyls, three vinyls even in one album. But their producer at the time said, we had a song called Silver Springs that couldn't make the record because it was too long. That broke Stevie's heart. She loved Silver Springs so much, but we needed something a little shorter, a little up-tempo, and out came this kind of country thing that she and Lindsay had been doing live. So years later, Silver Springs would go go on to drive an even deeper wedge in the already strained relationship between Stevie and drummer Mick Fleetwood which I'll get into in a bit because she wanted to include it in a greatest hits package of her own material but Fleetwood wanted it for a box of material celebrating the band's first 25 years together I mean it what you won't include it on the fucking album and then you include it on the song that I is so disrespectful towards me and now you want to take the song suddenly and put it on like a, a little collection of all our best hits nah that's my song um but during in 1997 they did a live concert for warren brothers um and recorded it as an album it was called the dance and that would be the video that you'll you if you're on tiktok you would have seen on tiktok of stevie like literally hexing Lindsay silver singing silver springs that's from the dance um so that she, it's re-emerged and brought it back to life. Um, but she said that a road sign for Silver Spring, Maryland, helped to inspire the song. Um, the lyrics are so hauntingly stunning. Um, in the chorus, when she sings, I know I could have loved you, but you would not let me. And to be fair, I think from a, from a purely like commercial I, I do think it was a smart move putting Silver Springs on the back of as a B-side to go your own way because they're quite similar. Like, So she says, I know I could have loved you, but you would not let me. And then Lindsay expresses like quite a similar sentiment about like unappreciated efforts on go your own way when he says, if I could, maybe I'd give you my world. How can I when you won't take it from me? So they're both kind of like saying similar things. Um when asked in a Rolling Stones interview back in 1997, so around the same time that they did the dance, um, about the chances of her and Lindsay ever getting back together, Stevie replied, over my dead body. See, I don't want to be part of that darkness. He knows that. When we're up there singing songs to each other, we probably say more to each other than we ever would in real life. If you offered me a passionate love affair and you offered me a high priestess role in a fabulous castle above a cliff where I can just like they have a very spiritual kind of religious library communing with the stars, learning of existence. I'm going for the high priestess. That's very Stevie of her though. Um, but yeah, I would, God, I would recommend, it's on YouTube. You can watch the whole of that live gig that they did for Warren Brothers, the dance. The album is also on Spotify. If anybody knows on the off chance where I can get a, the vinyl 
for that album the dance and um, please let me know i've been looking for it for so long some of the bloody live performances in that are so good my personal faves are silver springs the chain say you love me and tusk oh my god so good please go listen and you will see at the end of that song you know she's not doing herself any favors stevie because at the end of that song that live version of silver springs she is hexing him she is looking so deep into his eyes into his soul and sucking she's like a vampire she's like sucking the life out of him when she's singing you'll never get away from the sound of the woman who loves you was i just a fool oh i get chills every time i watch it it feels like i'm actually invading on someone's personal like i'm on an intimate moment i kind of like i'm looking through my fingers watching it like oh should i be watching this i feel like i'm intruding but yeah would recommend go watch so the only song in rumors that credits all five members as songwriters would go on to be their most iconic song and almost like an anthem for them and that is of course the chain The song, it's funny because the song, the lyrics, so the song came from like four, I always listen to that song and I think, Jesus, this sounds like four different songs in one and I love songs like that, it's just chaos. Um, it's actually not far from the truth because John and Mick had wrote um, the kind of ending of it, so where his bass line comes in and then Lindsay gets in on the guitar and then it's like, chain, basically like the Formula One part, you know, the way it was like the teen tune for Formula One for years, like, yeah, that part. So they wrote that and then Christine and uh, Stevie loved it so much that they were like, we need to write something to this. So Stevie had already lyrics written that she thought would go well. And then Lindsay had a song that he wrote years ago um, that he thought would work well and that would go on to be like the, you know, like the beginning of it and the verses where it's like, Boom, 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 boom. That yeah, that bit. Um, so it was like four songs strung together, but it's kind of ironic because um, Stevie, who wrote the lyrics, um, it's a song about keeping together, and no matter how bad things got, nobody like, yeah, it's it's a song about keeping together. Which you know, when we look at all the other songs that Stevie and Lindsay have wrote for the album, we're kind of like, well, is that really what you want? Um. But, like, no matter how bad things got, nobody wanted to leave the band and the relationship did not override the band. That's how Stevie, like, interpreted it. And, like, lyrically, it it just centres around the invisible chain that holds two people or I always interpret it as the group. I think, like, this song is... If someone was to, like, give a song to describe Fleetwood Mac, it'd be this song. Because when you think about all the shit they went through and the fact that they've gone years and years and years still together, even though there's this much drama between them... So it's the chain that holds a group of people together and the looming reality that the relationship has run its course and it's time to sever the bond, but their memories and emotions, emotions hold it together. So I think that that was quite, quite nice. And I think Mick Fleetwood had like a big part in that because yes, he was going through his own shit with his wife, but at least it wasn't like a member of the band. And, you know, each member of the band said like, oh, excuse me, frog in my throat. <laughs> 
each member of the band had said like at separate points that you know there would have been a time where they would have been happy to leave um but Mick was always the one that that didn't want to do that he's also like at the at that point he was the only member of the band who was a father so he took that role on quite well Christine used to refer to him as a uh, big daddy Mick which sounds a bit wrong but anyway at least it wasn't Stevie calling him that because that would have been problematic um but yeah um I think this was a good song for him and the fact that he had a lot to do with the writing of it um and he's always said like yeah I wanted like Fleetwood Mac is my baby but you know that's just part of who I am like he's a drummer and a very talented one but he said no matter how talented I am I'm kind of useless without a group of people so I think this song was like a real anthem for him and god if you watch the live performances of him playing the drums on that song you can see he's just delighted to be there I love him love him but yeah so that was the chain um, and then the album closes with the hauntingly stunning track Gold Dust Woman, written by Stevie. Rack on, gold dust woman, take your silver spoon, dig your grave. Um, so when asked what the song was about, Stevie said, Gold Dust Woman was really my symbolic look about somebody going through a bad relationship and doing a lot of drugs and trying to just make it trying to live trying to get through it to trying to get through to the next thing when christine saw saw it she said wow we've always known that goldust woman was about the serious drug days but this really depicts how frightening it was for all of us and what we were willing to do for it we were dancing on the edge for years now stevie's always been quite candid about her well especially in the past few years has been quite candid about her her drug use and the effects it's had on her um she did an oprah winfrey special it was like a master class with oprah winfrey or something a few years ago and she said that she used to carry a gram of cocaine in her boot at all times when i say boot i mean like her shoe and it was the first thing she thought about when she woke up in the morning and the last thing she thought about before going to bed she said that going into the making of rumours was when it started to change because that's when she started buying it herself and that's what makes it different because if you're buying it, you're doing it. She says by the time they were recording their follow-up album, Tusk, hundreds and thousands of dollars were being spent on coke between the band. She said that two weeks worth of coke could have paid for her rent for six months. Fucking hell, it must have been some good quality shit she was getting. Because I would imagine by the time they were recording Tusk that because Rumours like was so successful that they would have had a lot of money. So she probably was living somewhere nice, which probably was like quite expensive. So the fact that two weeks, 14 days worth of cocaine would have paid for her rent for, for half a year is crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, And then Stevie had started dating somebody around the end of 1976 started 1977 and she ended up having an affair with bandmate Mick Fleetwood so our good old drummer Mick her and Stevie were fooling around with each other doing the dirty you know Christ you got John and Christine married divorce affair with the lighting director Curry Stevie and Mick wife cheats on him with his best friend Stevie and Lindsay, K 
killing each other, roaring matches in the middle of the studio. Then Stevie's like, oh, sure, what else? What, what, what more drama can I bring to the group? Let's shag the drummer. Or actually, do you know what? That's quite sexist to me. Maybe Nick was like, Nick, Mick was like, what else could I bring? What drama could I bring? Maybe he thought, oh, you know, I'll just piss Lindsay off a bit. Come on, let's go. But she said that she regrets this her time with Mick and she said and I quote Mick and I would have never have had an affair had we not been at a party and all been completely drunk and messed up and coked out and you know ended up being the last two at the party so guess what it's not hard to figure out what happened and what happened wasn't a good thing it was doomed it was a doomed thing because it caused a lot of pain for everybody and led to nothing Mick and I talked about what a dumbass thing it was for us to have done and that basically we were not going to break Fleetwood Mac up she said and we got on that plane held hands all the way back to Los Angeles and realized when we got off the plane that for all practical purposes it was over it had its month of glory which was fantastic and very romantic and then we got back to LA it was not romantic anymore it was horrifying it should have never happened so she then wrote their song Sarah for their album Tusk about her affair with um, Fleetwood. She said Sarah was pretty much about Mick. So he was the dark, he was the great dark wing. And ah, uh, it was about everything that was going on at that particular time too. But he was the reason for the, you know, beginning of it. She also said that there's an extended version of the songs that fans have never heard and the lyrics contain a more personal story. She said, Sarah is my most personal song. It's about myself and what all of us in Fleetwood Mac were going through at the time. She reportedly told US Magazine in 1990 that the true version of the song is 16 minutes long. It's a saga with many verses people haven't heard. I wish he'd never said that because... I really want to hear that now. Maybe one day. Maybe maybe it's already been released. I never thought to check that out. I don't think it has. I feel like I would know if a 16-minute version of a Fleetwood Mac song was released. But let me see. Let me open up my Spotify here. Nope not released there you go maybe one day we'll get it come on stevie give the people what they want please so there you go that was the foundation of rumors along with other songs that we haven't had time to discuss such as secondhand news never going back again songbird and oh daddy and when rumors was released it was selling over two hundred thousand copies a day um Lindsay stated that whatever was going on in the group, especially between the two couples, very much informed the material. And I think that that was a very great appeal for the album. If you look at the success that Rumours enjoyed, I think it goes a little bit beyond the music itself. And I would agree. I mean, musically and sonically and lyrically, it's perfection. It's fantastic. But I think the initial appeal for a lot of people at the time and still to this day... um, Fleetwood Mac never go out of trend they're always like people are still so intrigued by their story and rightly so but I think the initial appeal for a lot of people is knowing like you know you could be listening to this podcast and you might know a lot about Fleetwood Mac but I feel like most people know 
that there was drama and there was breakups and then that intrigues you like we're wired as human beings for some reason to like crave drama you know you're like oh what did that say oh I got a bit like you know it's like oh got a bit have you any gossip for me yeah you know you love it you people love the drama and that's definitely what brought people in and then maybe down the line they realize these are actually great songs but and you know back then I guess you know you didn't have social media there was, no, there was no such thing as instant gratification back then. Like, whereas now you can, like, go on Instagram or go on YouTube or Google something and you can get an answer straight away. But back then, like, people were probably hearing through the grapevine that there was trouble in paradise. Maybe in the newspapers there was a few headlines. And they knew that they were in there recording this and that they were going to have to wait now a year or whatever to hear what was being said. And that must have been a massive appeal for people. And I mean, whatever, it worked because it stayed at the top of the Billboard 200 for 31 non-consecutive weeks while also reaching number one in the UK, Australia, Canada and New Zealand. It won the 1978 Grammy Award for Album of the Year and by 2017, sales were over 40 million copies. And as of October 2019, rumour has spent 800 weeks in the UK top 100 album charts and it is the 11th best-selling album in UK history. Mick Fleetwood has called Rumours the most important album we ever made because its success allowed the group to continue recording for years to come. So there you have it folks. I'm gonna stop this episode here. I'm just over an hour and I feel like people will not listen to me for much longer and I think it's a good place to stop. We've kind of wrapped up rumours. Um, but in saying that, if people are happy enough, or if you would like, I would be more than willing to do a part two on this because, you know, this episode alone, we've only kind of got up to 1976. You know, we have the Tusk album to cover, um, Mirage, Tango in the Night, all their tours, you know, there was a period where Lindsay got kicked out of the band. Christine left. Drama, drama, drama. You know, poor Christine died there last year, so we can talk about that. Um, yeah, let me know what you think. If you would like a part two in this, we've got a lot more to discuss. We're only getting in. Like, I mean, you know, the band were only really starting to get successful at this point. So the the chaos kind of only goes uphill from there. So yeah, let me know what you think. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something. Um, And as I always say, please, 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 please. It actually really helps because if you don't want to listen to the podcast, fair enough. But if you rate this five stars, then it will filter out to people who do want to listen. So if you're one of my friends or family that I've been torturing to listen to the episode and you're kind of like, oh, don't want to, just rate it five stars. Go on Spotify or Deezer or whatever you're listening to on. I am trying to get this on Apple. But fucking Steve Jobs and his Apple. It's such a pain to get anything on there. But yeah, if you like, follow. Follow me on Instagram. Follow me on TikTok. I'm trying to make more like little TikTok videos, but they just take me so long. I also was getting hate from the Harry stands on my last TikTok, even though I specifically said in my last video that I am a Harry girl. But I'm going to try and make more TikToks and post more on Instagram. So follow me there for updates. And if you like this, please subscribe, like, comment, share. And as always, thank you for listening. And I hope to... 
have you all here at the next episode. Bye guys.